You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, it's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. For more information or to get in touch, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening. This, this, this is Motorsport Radio. Hello and welcome to the first of a special double episode of the British GT Fan Show. We've had so much good content that we couldn't decide what to leave out, especially in our interview. So we've decided to make the first of these a Rick Parfit Jr. special and we're really pleased to bring you the entirety of the interview that we were lucky enough to do with him this week. So sit back, relax, grab a copper and enjoy. So I'm really pleased to announce that our guest today is none other than the racing legend Rick Parfit Jr. Uh, We're really, really lucky to have Rick joining us because he's actually away on his holidays. So thank you so much for joining us from the south of France. How's the weather over there? Um... Do you want the honest answer? Yes. <laughs> or shall I just say it's raining? <laughs> um, it, it's very, very hot, actually. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's good. And it's nice um, to be here, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's really great to have you. So we're going to dive straight into the questions. So uh, we've got a bit of a change round uh, for this episode because we've actually got three of us around. So Nick, Andrew and myself are all here. Uh, so Nick's going to kick us off with some of the more kind of formal questions. Over to you, Nick. <laughs> Thank you, and hello, hello, Rick. Um, starting off, of course, you've you've done a heck of a lot in racing for for somebody whose whose bread and butter isn't racing. Can you give us a quick rundown of your sort of early racing career up to up to entering the British GT Championship? Oh wow! Um, uh, I guess it all started at a little indoor go kart place in Weybridge called Carting Indoors or whatever, uh, and and then. I got to meet Charlie Graham from Daytona. And um, so I spent a load of my time at Daytona Sandown Park and Milton Keynes. And and then I got spotted. Uh, oh, and it had a really crazy little indoor kart circuit called Spitfire, which was a proper school of hard knocks indoor karting place. And um, I turn up there um, every sort of Sunday night and um, in that open night. And I started winning. And then I won every weekend I entered to the point where people would say, if he's racing, we're not coming anymore. And um, so they banned me and someone then said, right, you need to join our outdoor team. So I went, okay, fine. So I, I sort of uh, joined their outdoor team whilst I was, uh, you know, still at uni and, um, and then was quicker than them. And then sort of went and got spotted and uh, I, I ended up setting up my own endurance team and raced on my student loan, basically. And then luckily got spotted by a company called BizCart. And then I raced for them for seven years. And um, we were British endurance champions. I won the 24-hour uh, Le Mans for karting. I won the 24-hour Dubai for karting. Raced against some mega people, you know, Colin Brown, you know, and at various other times. It was Jensen and David and lots of F1 boys. And I think there's a picture on my timeline where I did a few events with Lewis as well. And um uh, it was great. And then, of course, had no money to get into cars. And then Lawrence Tomlinson came along and said, Bath, you need to get into one of my cars. And I just went, no, Lawrence, I've got no money. I'm just a musician. And he went, don't worry, we'll we'll help you out. So he helped me get into a GT5. And um, I said, sorry, this is a very long 
a very long answer, but this is the career, <laughs> I guess. Um, and got into it for the first time at Silverstone, promptly chucked it into the pit exit wall, um, which was a pretty ignominious start for my career. And uh, at the same time, I got invited to do the Silverstone Classic celebrity race. Uh, evidently, they were struggling for celebrities, and so they asked me. And uh, in a theatre bar, and um, I went down the inside of uh, Neil from Travis, who actually races Lola's and stuff. I think he was a bit surprised, and I won that. And that started to think, make me think, okay, we can do this. And so I ended up in GT5. And, um, you know, people I don't think took me seriously at all. And then I started climbing and getting quicker and quicker. I had a lap record at Silverstone um, briefly. <laughs> and, um, and then obviously, after two years of GT5, um, went into GT4 with Ryan um, and was really intimidated by a GT4 car. I mean, there's so much more horsepower and, and uh, you know, and then it all got a bit serious, didn't it? You know, and I literally had just enough money to do the season with no damage and um, had a big crash at Zandvoort, you know, after um, one of my rivals who, who shall remain nameless hit me up the backside. And um, once I'd just taken the lead from him, he didn't like that and um, wrecked my floor tray. And so it went really light on the one place at Zandvoort you don't want it to on the last corner coming onto the straight and I had a massive shunt and no money to repair the car and luckily my sponsors helped me out and we went on to win the championship which was great and then of course defended it in 2015 with Tom and um, unfortunately we had so many reliability issues but I, I think we should have won that because we were always at the front and um, until it broke and then 15 with the uh, with the with the Ginetta GT3 which was still one of the most exciting GT3 cars um, but it broke every round, which was atrocious. And then obviously he got the call up from Parkers with Bentley to join some whippersnapper called Seb. And um, yeah, the rest is history, really. So there you go. The longest answer to a question ever. But you know what? You've done excellent work there because whilst you've been doing it, I've been ticking off the pre-prepared questions and I've got four of them checked off already. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that, no that's, that's absolutely fair enough. I always over-prepare for these things. You know, my job is to be on stage and to, to talk so or sing rather. So, yeah, I don't have an issue with chatting. Yeah. yeah. Um, going back slightly to, to the classic, uh, to the Silverstone Classic, because mm. you, had, you had competing responsibilities at that event, didn't you? Because you were racing in the, in the celebrity race and you were also opening the concert on Saturday night. Uh, How we hard was it? Saturday night. We weren't opening. Oh. Opening, we had... We had an X Factor guy, Daniel Johnson, who's on the uh, one of that, that lottery um, advert now, and we had Jedwood, and then we were on. So you were the headline. It was an, yeah, we were the headline. Yeah, and um, that was an interesting, interesting night. Jedwood. Oh my! Uh, I mean, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> different <laughs> but, styles, yeah. I think. Yeah, very, very. Let's just say, very different styles, and. Um, and of course, you know, it was a great, you know what, what a fantastic weekend. I, since then, I'm, I've absolutely been in love with Silverstone Classic. It's just so, so wonderful. The cars are so amazing. And when you watch like the uh, sort of the Lola, is it T9, T60s or T70s? I can't remember what they're called. But And all the sort of the Le Mans 66 kind of vibe cars, you know, yeah. oh my God, they sound incredible. And they look incredible. And I mean... I'd, I'd absolutely love to be in historics at some stage. I think it's just a wonderful thing that people keep these cars running as they do. And to have something like that, oh, it's just, it just gives me goosebumps. It's amazing. So, yeah, that was an amazing weekend uh, for me, to be honest, because that started it all off, really. 
the the first classic I ever did, the first thing I saw when I went out trackside was the Ferrari bread van exchanging ah. paint with a C-type Jag. And I'm like, hang on. Isn't that amazing? That's like more that, those two cars there are more money than I will ever see in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And, they're and, and, and they don't hold back. There's, it's proper racing. No one holds back. You know, it's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So if anyone out there wants to offer me a, a ride in their Mini, I'm, I'm totally up for it. <laughs> the question that I had with regards to the Classic, how hard was it juggling preparation as an athlete? And then preparation as a performer, doing both jobs on, on the same weekend at the same place. Oh, easy. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the, the celebrity race is just a bit of a laugh. And um, and from a band perspective, you know, we are very well rehearsed. And um, so, you know, I, I can do the band stuff with my eyes closed. You know, the band all know exactly what we're doing. Um so to do both was, wasn't difficult. It wasn't particularly physically challenging. I think if it, if it had been like a British GT round and the performance, you know, um, then that's quite hard work. Although saying that, I did actually do that on several weekends in the last few years. There was one particular time when um, I had to be back on the Saturday night after racing at Spa to go on stage. And it's possibly the most rock and roll weekend of my life. Um, and we were like thinking, well, how can we do it? If we leave straight after the race in the car, and just literally break every speed limit, we could potentially just get back in time to Hampshire to play at this festival called Loudfest, which we were headlining and be on stage for about, I think it's like nine o'clock. And, um, but we were like, it's too close. And then of course, Mark Farmer, who, as you guys know, you know, has, has been a, a rival for many years in the Aston. Um, he was flying over in his little private jet. So I sort of cheekily phoned him up and I said, Captain Mark, could I possibly get a, uh, a lift over and back? And he was like, sure. And so it was such an amazing weekend. So we flew over there with him piloting. I mean, what a legend he is, you know, and um, landed, got to the race circuit, did the two days racing, then straight after the race, legged it back to, um, uh, I can't remember what the airport was. And I flew back and then drove straight to the festival, literally got there, put a different shirt on, bit of gel in the hair, and then walked straight on stage to 7,000 people. I mean, you know, and I came off and I just thought it doesn't get much more rock and roll than that. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, that's pretty much as, as cool as it gets. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that's pretty impressive. Um, now, obviously, you, as you said, you did the Janetta GT3, which... yeah. It was a fan favourite, but probably not a mechanic's favourite, uh, if we put it that way. Um, was was that uh, you know, the only, um, was that the only issue that season, or was was there really just a massive learning curve moving up from GT four to GT three? Oh, I think it's a combination of a lot of stuff. Um, I think when you know, there, I felt really comfortable in that car. I really the, the Ginetta GT three is a great car, it, but I think. In that first year, we weren't running enough wing. The wing was a lot smaller than all the other other contemporary GT3. So I think we were lacking a bit of downforce and um, and also perhaps a little bit of grunt as well. But that's all comes down to the old boff again, doesn't it? And I don't really know how much SRO wanted a Ginetta to win, to be honest. I don't know. I mean, I mean that's that's speculative. But um, but you know what? It was just such an amazing feeling being in GT3 because I remember being in GT5. And taking my family, you know, into the pits and going, this is a GT3 car. I will never be in one of these, you know, and just just looking at this unachievable thing. 
so I've got to thank Lawrence again, you know, for and Janetta for you know sticking by me and and obviously helping me get into a GT3 car. And um, but as a car, it's really exciting uh, the the Janetta because there's that element of almost TVR esqueness where you just never knew quite what was going to happen, <laughs> you know, so, um, or whether it was going to last. But it was it was it handled brilliantly, especially in the wet. It was unbeatable in the wet. Um, and maybe a little bit too soft in the dry, but um, as a car, it was it was great fun. We just I think did ten or twelve alternators every single uh, every single race. We had an alternator issue, so um, but um, but yeah, it was it was a, it was a good time. It was a, it was a good first indicator, but obviously the difference between development budget for Ginetta, say, and Aston and who and all the others and Ferrari, you know did become a little bit apparent, I would say. Yeah, I mean, that's what's been, been, been running through my head. Of, I was, at the time, I was very uncomplimentary about the Janetta. But when you consider what Lawrence and his guys achieved on an industrial estate just outside of Leeds with a, a few big brains and a packet of Yorkshire tea, and they were going yeah. up against the combined might of Audi and Lamborghini and Aston Martin and BMW, massive companies with massive computers and massive brains it's i say it it didn't look good on on results but what they achieved and and it's what janetta has been doing for years isn't it just just yeah, look at what they've forget, been achieving yeah, don't forget, don't forget in, in in alton at the first round when we turned up i qualified six which is pretty good going you know and i led i led the race <laughs> in a janetta you know we led so that wasn't a bad, you know, first, first initiation. And there were a lot of times when at Rockingham, if you look back on 2015, yeah, we didn't qualify well, but I was the fastest car on track and I got the fastest lap before it broke down. So we were, you know, we had lots and lots of potential there, you know. And, um, but yeah, like you say, the resources, I think, limited the ability of the car. But the fact is, there was brilliant potential with that with that vehicle. But I think we were, like I said, also held back a little bit on that level as well. So um, because perhaps, like you say, we're not quite Janetta weren't quite as as sexy as say a Lamborghini or an Aston, you know, or, or anything else. So there is that element as well. So after the year in the Janetta GT3, you switched to Team Parker Racing, the the Bentley, and were joined by Seb, as you said. It was. The start of two two pretty good relationships there for you. One with a, a co-driver you had massive success with, and the other with the the first team that I can see that you had multiple years with. It netted yeah. third place in two thousand sixteen, and then obviously two thousand seventeen was was the big one. Um, how important yeah. was that two thousand sixteen year in in building the relationships that made two thousand seventeen possible? Oh, it was it was fundamental. I mean, it was a whole different ball game, you know stepping up into a team that was really established, really well run. I mean, Stuart, I've known Stuart for years because I, I don't know whether most people know, but before I left to, to do music, I, I worked for Haymarket Publishing for 12 years. I, I, I sold ads on Autosport magazine. So I've known a lot of people in motorsport for many years and I've known Stuart for a long time. So it was, it was, a, it was special for me on so many levels because A, you know, no one would have thought I would have gone from ad sales to actually racing something, but not only that, to be competitive, it was it was a dream come true for me. Add to that, 
this young whippersnapper Seb, who everyone said was quick. And, um, but he was, you know, though in those days, Seb was still a little bit, I would say he was, he was a diamond in the rough, which everybody knew, you know, and, um, he, he was a terribly good looking chap. He's a bit of a rock and roll star himself, but ballistically quick. And I remember when we first started racing, you know, I mean, he brought me on massively as well. And, um, as a pairing, we're just, we just got on, you know, as everyone knows, Seb and I get on great. And also Stuart and I got on great and we had a, a really good team as well around us. And, um, it was just a really good atmosphere. And to be fair, um, we had a, I think we had a good BOP that year as well. And to be honest, I think we should have actually done a bit better. We didn't maximize the chance we had. And so to come third was good, but I, I genuinely think we could have done better. But that was down to everyone bedding in with each other, Seb bedding in with me, me getting to grips with a competitive car and a big car. And, uh, and the team learning how to manage both Seb and I. And, um, but undoubtedly, what was special was um, I, had a, I had a few amazing moments that year. Um, you know, turning up at the first round at Brands Hatch and we stuck it on pole, both Seb and I, you know, in 2016. And there's a few videos that are flying around. You know, I was literally, I had tears in my eyes. I couldn't believe it that we'd done that. It was just such an, an, a, a massive achievement um, because people, I don't think, realized that the Bentley was that competitive having the previous years um, being run, uh, the car was struggled, struggled. And so it was great for both of us to put it on pole in both of our sessions and to give Bentley their first ever domestic pole and also to give them Bentley their first ever domestic uh, race win as well was, was incredible um, at Alton that year as well. And it just meant so much. So yeah, it was, it was a great, great year. And, um, and it definitely, I a shot across the bow for everybody to realise that Seb and I were a, a, for, a formidable team, and with uh, and with a resurgent Bentley Conti GT3, you know we were going to be a force to be reckoned with for the following year. And of course, with the Bentley, it prepared you well for driving the RV around the French mountain roads. <laughs> uh, actually, the RV's front wheel drive, which uh, so it's uh, it's more akin to a touring car. But it has got a 6.8 litre V10 in it, my RV, which is uh, sounds awesome. But um, uh, it does uh, it'll pass anything except the petrol station as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Right. Well, we have fans' questions that get submitted each each episode for for our interviewees. Andrew's going to handle a Great. few of them now, and then we'll come back to to, to to a bit more of the modern stuff from from your career. Yeah. Cool. Hi, I'm Michael O'Brien, professional racing driver for McLaren, and I'm delighted to be joining the guys on the British GT Fan Show. Go and check them out, and uh, yeah, you won't be disappointed. And be sure to check out British GT Fans on Facebook and Fans of British GT on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, so hi, Rick. Uh, so the first question we've got is from Tom Davies, and you may sort of cover this already, but he's put, why did you want to get into GT racing? Uh, who who wouldn't want to get into GT racing? I've I've always said um, it was everything was an unassailable dream. I never thought I'd be in a race car, let alone in a GT3 car. So uh, everything was just a step, a stepping stone. Could I find the sponsorship every year? Yeah, great, a step up. Could I find the sponsorship again? And it was just like working my absolute butt off, and with some amazing, amazing friends and family and acquaintances and people I've gigged for as well, companies that I gigged for and got on, ended up sponsoring me. And 
that is just the most amazing thing. So the dream became a reality. So why did I want to get into it? Because it's it's just motorsport has been in my blood since I was a kid. You know, we used to, my family's from Woking originally. So even when I was a kid, dad and I used to drive down to see the Formula One cars get rolled out out of what looked like sort of, um, sort of a row of huts, which was then the McLaren sort of, not huts, but, you know, sort of um, very 60s sort of garages, you know, and then obviously it got bigger and bigger. And um, my dad and Ron Dennis went to the same school in working. And um, so, you know, I've had a long old um, association with motorsport. I think my first ever word was car and uh, in the world, not mum or dad, but it was car. And so, yeah, racing and obviously karting for many, many years. And uh, so cars was always always going to be the end point, you know, for me. But it was, like I said, a dream that became a reality. And um, But it wasn't easy. I think a lot of people thought that it was just put on a plate and that my dad was paying for it. And obviously, since my dad passed away and everyone knows his financial situation, people actually now realize that my life and my career from racing has had nothing to do with who my dad is or or his uh, his um, financial situation. It's been through sheer hard work and and bloody mindedness to just go out and make sure I can find the money to go and do it and enjoy it. So yeah, if that's an answer, there you go. I think that covers it. Next question is from Tom Stalker. He has put besides the Bentley GT3s, which other GT3 cars would would you love to drive and uh, which track? Um, obviously, I've had a, an amazing, an amazing relationship with Bentley uh, and with uh, obviously vicariously Team Parker and in the last stages JRM, um, and they've been nice to me. I've been their AM driver of the year, you know, twice, and it's it's been wicked. So, but of course, when you're driving around, all the cars have different strengths. You know, we you can see it. Donny, the Bentley always struggles hairpin to hairpin, always has the first one and the second gen, and we lose loads of time there. And I've been behind the I've been behind the Lambos and just seen them just take four car lengths out of the hair. And you're just like, oh my God, you know. And so to be honest, um, I've seen the sheer grunt of the Ashtons in comparison to us as well. So I'd love to have driven them all. I'd like to still like to drive them all, you know, um, just to see what each one is like. I don't have the luxury of being able to be a multimillionaire. I say, well, do you know what? I'm going to switch teams. I'm going to go and race at the Mercedes this year or this, because that's obviously the best car. I've always had to just try and take the drive that I can afford um, and only pay my half of the car. And hopefully I can find a pro who's quick enough, but who has also got budget. Whereas now in British, for the main part, you know, uh, one person, the AM, tends to pay for everything and then ships in the factory driver. And I'm not in a position to do something like that. So it hampers competitiveness. But with regards to driving any of the other cars i'd love to have a go in the mall i'd love to have have a have a have a go in the lamborghini it looks just so so lovely and um easy to drive the the mercedes i have actually driven um i did a test for stracker at paul rickard and i was amazed at how planted and how different that was to the bentley um it was less fuss and it was easier to drive as well um so yeah all of them all of them <laughs> <laughs> any particular track you would like to drive them at uh, do you know, I mean, um, I'd like to do more European circuits. Obviously, I've mainly done just British, you know, and um, I think some of the circuits are just a bit too tight. Like, you know, Brands is wonderful, but it's so tight in a GT3 car, um, as is, and Alton as well. There is literally virtually nowhere to overtake. If you hold your line, 
there's, there's, there is pretty much nowhere to overtake. And uh, so when I did Daytona uh, after I won the Sunoco Challenge, I mean, that was an amazing, amazing experience going onto the banking at 170 miles an hour and just tipping over and just going, what? And looking almost through your side window because in front of you, just got a wall of concrete. I'd love to do more American circuits. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, Laguna Seca would be great. I'd love to do Daytona again. And I'd love to do some of the um, bigger, uh, bigger Italian circuits as well, Monza, Imola, you know, so we'll have to just wait and see. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Uh, next question is from, I think somebody you should know, it's called Matt Brigden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's put, has someone who has raced in both generations of the Bentley, what would you say the biggest differences between them? Right. They are actually fundamentally different cars. And um, the first generation, there was, uh, we had, so in 2016 and 17, uh, the Gem 1 was a, was a fantastic car. Um, where I think most people realized was it struggled coming out of corners a bit, which everyone could see. You know, but it was, a, it was a monster of a car. Also, they, they, the tire compound, which we used in 16 and 17, really suited the car. The sidewalls were a lot um, less uh, stiff. And so the car really suited. You could brake really late and um, get, the air, um, uh, get the air con, get the, the aerodynamics working. And then, um, uh, but you could roll the car over on the sidewall and it would sit down and really work. And that was great. Obviously, it didn't suit the Lamborghinis. And so they kept on having blowouts. And so um, I think I really changed the compound after whatever reason. And in 2018, the Gen 1, it made it a lot more, uh, a lot, a slightly more, um, how shall I put it? Um, uh, it just didn't have a lot of progressiveness because it would either load up and then snap, you know, whereas before you could really use the sidewall of the, of the tire to sit it down and it was just, it was just beautiful. So you had to really change the, um, so, uh, your driving style for the second, um, uh, tire, um, compound. Um, the gen two car is a very, very different car. It's got, it's got very um, different characteristics. Whereas the gen one car was really, really good on its tires. So we would run really low, tire pressures and in the long runs in 2016-17 you know we were strong later on in the stint so you knew you could go behind the Lamborghini wait for them to really use their tires up and then you know you'd have an advantage and so we would play to that strength and just try and hassle and hassle and hurry and then know that mid stint our car would have you know better grip and so so you'd almost force them to use their tires up and um, in the Gen 2 it became almost like the Lamborghini. Uh, the tire day that we suffered last year was, was really bad. And so you could push, but then you would lose a lot of tire. Um, and um, it was, I mean, I don't think I had the best out of it last year because when people saw what JRM and us achieved, well, we did that on a budget that was less than one driver in GT4. I mean, we were running on the tightest budget you've ever, ever experienced and as a result we didn't test at all the two one hour sessions at each round were our test session and trying to set up so i ended up last year not really having any laps in the car at all um you know we'd get we get seb to do set up we'd work on stuff and um in the first hour and then maybe i'd get four or five or six laps in the second 
session and then have to go straight into qualifying. So that's what people didn't realize. So, and the car was a lot more snappier than the other one. It's a lot more aero. So from an AM perspective, you, you saw that um, Farmer Mark struggled a lot. I definitely struggled with it last year as well. Uh, but uh, to essentially, I needed a lot more time in the car. The car is very, very quick, you know, um, but um, it has, it's been developed now even better. And I'm sure the guys in the Bentleys this year will do a lot better. But we were also hampered by BOP um, again. Um, as soon as after Alton, we had our wings clipped and just in a straight line, we were, we were really slow last year. And at Alton last year, it was just ridiculous. I did one of my, what I would consider one of my best qualifying laps ever in a car. I got out and I went, everyone's been quiet. I thought this is going to be pole. And they said I was 11th. And I just went, that's absolutely ridiculous. And then Seb went out. And as we all know, Seb will make the car go as quick as it can as well. And he qualified 11th as well. And we knew that we weren't anywhere, you know, and on the straight, when the light went green, my foot was flat to the floor and you just watched everyone just literally drive away. And I remember radioing in going, guys, we are, we're just mullered. We, we can't, we're so slow in a straight line. And of course you factor in then coming out of the um, hairpins as well with the lack of grunt as well. And basically we, we were sitting ducks last year. So we had to just go around and fight as hard as we can to try and get a result. So to actually finish, I think sixth or seventh or whatever we did, it's a bit of a miracle to be honest. So two very, very different cars. Um, and you need two very different styles to actually, um, uh, to, to get them to work. Um, and the second car has got, um, a lot more yaw in it as well. So it was perhaps a little bit less progressive than the first generation Bentley. Um, but, uh, that's all because all the cars are going more towards aero and less towards mechanical grip. There you go. It's more of a race car than, the, than the first one, probably. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. So people who come up from, um, the, the downforce era, you know, from, and from the, um, downforce, um, single seaters, uh, categories will, would benefit a lot more from the gen two. Definitely. Do they sound the same from inside? It's the same engine, so yeah, they do. Yeah, <laughs> still, still the best sounding thing they, out there. You know what? And and the best moment I would say of a race weekend is when you roll out in one of the practice sessions and the sun's shining and you just come out slow and then you floor it, and you just go around with no pressure and you're just warm, putting heat into the tires and just doing system checks. And that is an amazing moment. And and that's always what I've said. I just each time I never lost that excitement where you go out and you go, I'm so lucky to be able to do this. I'm so, so lucky to be doing this and to be in this car with this sound and to be able to do this. And, and that is, it's, a, it's very, very special. It's very special. Matt also asks, uh, flashback to your title decider in 2017. So you come around the chicane and you see um, a certain Lamborghini facing the wrong way. What went through your mind? Um, a moment of elation, but at the same time, I had Liam Griffin in front of me. So I knew that he would back me into, into him and I knew that John would be on a charge. And given what I was saying about Donington not being our strongest circuit, um, I knew that the Lamborghinis were strong. So whilst, yeah, he fun, he wasn't in any trouble and I knew that he would come back strong, um, which he did. So, um, all I needed to do was I had to get past Liam and, um, 
And he was blocking and blocking and blocking and blocking. And we knew that he was trying to back me into John again. And um, then we came up against this, this a, foot, uh, a yellow going down the craners. I did one of the best overtake maneuvers, I think, of my career. I literally held back and then steamed it, saw the green, and was alongside just before the green and passed him just after the green and the GT4 and got in front. So completely caught, caught Liam napping and then put my head down and, and got, some, got some time between us. Um, so, yeah, whilst it was elation, we all know what GT3 uh, racing can be like. And so there wasn't ever a moment where I thought it's in the back at all. And um, so it was absolutely, you know, head down, go as fast as we can and try and, you know, bring back as good a car as I can to give Seb a chance against Phil. So that was kind of the way it was. And we knew where we had to finish. But at the same time, like I said, the car wasn't the strongest at Donny. We definitely didn't have the strongest car. And so uh, there was no chance of a race win there. It was the Astons have won there year in, year out. You know, there was no chance we couldn't compete with their raw power. So uh, given that situation, we had to finish in the top five, I think, you know, so uh, we had to go hell for leather. There was no relief until the checkered flag. And what, what an amazing moment that was. I mean, uh, I couldn't believe it. it, it incredible moment. And I think I just pointed up at, up at the sky and just said, there you go, dad, you know, that one's for you. It's, it was a well fo- photographed moment of you pointing to the sky towards your dad. It was... um. Um, must have been a very emotional day for you, and uh, I think it was it was a good it was good to see how much it meant to you and what you'd gone through that year to do it. Oh, thanks, man. Um, well, it, it it wasn't just that; it was all the fallout of after the dad stuff, which was really tough. I mean, people don't know what went on with the whole press and all the other things that came with with dad passing, which was just horrific. So emotionally, it was quite tough. Um, health-wise, I was suffering because of all the stress as well. My Crohn's was really, really bad. And at Silverstone that year, I was in so much pain. I, I didn't tell anyone, obviously, because I probably wouldn't have been allowed to race. But I remember getting in the car and, you know, the, our engineer, Rich, was just like going, come on, you can do this. And I remember being second on the grid with Jack Mitchell next to me. And I thought, I can't fight him. I can't fight him. I haven't got, I haven't got the energy. So I knew I had to get away and um, Silverstone being one of my best circuits, I knew that I had a chance, but trying to, when we went around on the warm up lap and putting the heat into the tires, I nearly, I, I was so nearly sick in my helmet. I was just in so much pain. I was just feeling so, so bad. And so when I saw the green light, it's the best reaction I've ever had. And I just nicked him, nicked the lead off him and then just put my head down and went. And the car was superb that weekend. I mean, absolutely superb. And, there are sometimes when you just get into a flow and everything was just balletic and it was just flowing through and just really, 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 really lovely to drive. And I just got into a wonderful rhythm and yeah, and we got away and we won it and we, we did a really good strategy as well. Uh, as people know on that weekend, we ran very, very light to shorten the stint to put us off kilter with everybody else where everyone had fueled for long. So it gave me the, the time to scamper away. And I came in with, I think about sort of nearly 10 seconds lead handed over to Seb and by the time he'd finished we had like 30 seconds and then of course it's just bringing it home so it was an incredible strategy by Rich to be honest but back to that is Parker's the environment at Parker's is just wonderful you know Stuart has such a great team and and he knew how to handle me that year and um, 
he just said, Rick, it's just all you need to do is do be in the truck and be in the car and we'll look after all the rest. And he's just a great, he's a great team manager. Mm. Our next question is from Steve Davis and does actually ask about your experience with Crohn's disease. You've been quite open about this um, and he wanted to know if you feel it has affected your driving and also how you deal with it at the racetrack. Uh, definitely. It's definitely affected my driving. Um, there are a lot of races which, you know, I try and hide as much as I can. When I was in pain, I'd be in the motorhome and there were nights where I, I couldn't sleep. I was buckled up and doubled over on uh, literally on, on, on the floor in the motorhome and no one gets to see that. And um, it's just been really, really tough and there's only so many painkillers and, and, um, and medication I can take. And so it has affected me. But, you know, when you're passionate about something, you, you won't let it get in your way. And I, it has never stopped me yet performing. I have never stopped uh, not going on stage and I haven't ever stopped. It hasn't stopped me getting into a car either. And mm. you just, you have to just grit your teeth and get through it. There are definitely performances where I could have driven a lot better. Um, because I was so fatigued and, and, uh, by it all. And, and this is another thing when we test, uh, all the engineers know that I can go so much as I can, but people don't realize that with Crohn's as well, you, you suffer from chronic fatigue. So I, yeah. I, I suffer less energy than everybody else. And so when I get to a point and I know I'm going to just crash, you know, and I'm feeling really tired, I won't get into a car because when you're doing 150 miles an hour, uh, and you make a mistake. If you make a mistake, A, it can be a massive, massive crash and B, hugely expensive as well. So I never, ever wanted to put myself into that position. So all the engineers knew that on a test day, when I was done, I was done and that was it. So yeah, it has affected me, but you know, I've never let it stop me. And that's what everyone should think when they've got something. You, you can still achieve all your dreams. It's just going to be a little bit tougher. <laughs> yep. You just find a slightly different route to it. And I can say that from personal experience as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so next up, Scott Davey from Facebook has said, Hi, Rick, we've enjoyed your dog walking streams whilst on lockdown. How are you feeling uh, now? And how are plans for the future shaping up? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Walks, talks, views and poos. That was me and Charlie Path going walking. I think that was more of a, a sort of a therapy session for myself for keeping sane through lockdown. And it was, it was an amazing thing how many people sort of tuned in. And came and had a walk around the Nottinghamshire countryside with me. It was great fun. Um, uh, on the health level, I'm feeling great. Um, probably the best I've ever been in 10 years. Um, the, the operation I had in January was something I'd, I'd been kicking down the path as long as I could. And I, mm. because of racing and, uh, and commitment, because I knew that I'd, I'd have to take a long time off. And, um, uh, but my doctor literally got to the point and he said, look, there is no more messing around. We have to take large sections of your gut out. Otherwise, it's going month to month now. And soon, you're going to have to take it all out and we'll have a, a, a bag permanently, mm. minimum. And um, and also, potential of being incontinent as well. With no, It was just horrific. Um, so there was no choice. I had to book it in. And um, so that was it. And this year was just going to be taken off. I knew that I wasn't going to be ready for um, the season start. And um, But um, the operation was five and a half hours. They took large sections of my gut away and repaired a load at the top where it all fistulated as well. And it was very invasive as people have probably, I, I put one picture up of the scar. I've got a massive, massive scar, but this is the third one I've had of these. And it's very, very invasive. And, and, and um, it, it's a, it's a tough, 
not without its risks operation. You know, it's a bit, it's a biggie. And, um, but luckily, you know, I came through it and, um, and the first two months were absolute hell from a recovery. I could, I could hardly walk. I, could, I definitely couldn't, I could hardly stand. And so luckily I've got an amazing wife, Rach, who everyone knows from the paddock and stuff, who is just my absolute rock and was just there through every step of the way. And, you know, she's not, she's not afraid of all the embarrassing symptoms and everything that come with Crohn's and she's just brilliant on that level. And, um, so we kind of got through it together and then gradually I got stronger and stronger. And, and in the last, you know, I'd say two, two to three months. And now, um, it's just been amazing. I haven't had one flare up. I've had grumbles and the usual stuff that you'd, you'd associate. Like I still have to go to the loo a million times a day, but, um, but apart from that, you know, I'm feeling stronger and, I can eat anything again. I had a very limited diet before and, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's just in, what people don't realize. It's incredible to feel normal. Yes. You don't understand waking, waking up each morning with no pain. is just wonderful. Being able to sleep through the night is wonderful. And so I'm counting my blessings and feeling very, very lucky. And, um, you know, and uh, just uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to uh, almost a, a second lease of life from now on. So, um, but saying that, I've been very lucky. And, and then, and then, of course, the pandemic comes along, and I just feel for everybody who's who's suffered or know someone who suffered through the whole COVID thing. I mean, it's it's not just about having suffered with Crohn's, where you know what people. It's not just the physical side; it's the mental side that is really difficult. You know, as well dealing with it. You know, you don't want to be in public places. You don't want to hang out friends because you don't want to discuss it with people because everything's embarrassing and the pain and having had that for years um covid not only just about from an illness perspective but also from all the all the stuff that's happened with having to stay in and look after kids mm. and th- there's a mental side which is which everyone i think has suffered with with that as well and obviously with the job losses and the redundancies and the furloughs and uncertainty for everyone it's been such a tough time so um I'm, I'm definitely not complaining. I feel very, very lucky that I have my health back now. Um, and I just hope from a, from another perspective that the world can heal a bit now and that we come back to a slightly more empathetic world for everybody and, and that, um, everyone can look out for each other a little bit more and, and hopefully the world can come back and everyone can get back to doing what they, they do best soon. Yeah. So I know, um, you're currently in the south of France and we were talking earlier and you said that you're taking a trip around Europe. How are you finding traveling around now? Because obviously social distancing is still a thing everywhere. And and I know you've been to various places in the past. You know, what differences are there? Well, there's definitely, you know, an awareness, I would say, that obviously something's going on. And um, we're not being in any way irresponsible. You know, um, we we, to be honest, we just keep away from people. So, you know, this is, um, we just thought that we'd never have this time again because all I've ever done is worked, worked and raced, worked and raced, worked and raced, you know, gig, race, gig, race, work, helped Rach run the company. And we've never had this time, you know, and this is the only time because of COVID where our diary has been completely cleared. You know, there are no festivals, mm-hmm. there are no gigs happening. And, and obviously racing wise, you know, I wasn't going to race this year. So, this is the first time in our lives where we've had uh, this time to actually do something. And obviously as restrictions were lifted, we thought let's, let's do something a little bit special and just see some of the beautiful things that Europe has to offer. And, um, and also as people know, our motorhome, uh, par force one, as we call it, um, I've only ever driven it to motor racing circuits and parked it up there. You know, that, that's it. So 
it's a little bit of an adventure from that level going through some of the little country lanes in it you know um I'm definitely not the most skilled RV driver and um so we're having a bit of fun on that level but we're, we're just having a good time and it's it's been good for the soul it's been good from uh, mm. you know mentally as well and and um and I think we'll 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 be back soon and um be able to hopefully get back to um hopefully events will come back hopefully music will come back because the arts have been affected so so badly as yeah. is well documented in the press now and obviously we're very very much involved in that and um so we work with hundreds and hundreds of musicians and we represent lots of bands and DJs, all of, all of whom have had their, their livelihood completely taken away. And, you know, and we as a company have written off a year's worth of earnings as well. Um, I mean, it's just a, a, a scary time for everyone, but I just hope that um, everyone is hoping, obviously in the world, that we can find some form of a vaccine so that we can bring back art, culture, music, not just from a performance perspective, but just because it makes people happy. And that's the greatest thing in the world, isn't it? I, I consider my job to be a luckiest person because that, that is my job. I turn up to places and we try to make people happy. And, and I'd, I'd like to get back to doing that as well. <laughs> Scott also asks, do you have any tips for Steve Davis? Driving, singing or fashion tips will do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. How am I supposed to answer that? Um, uh, uh, the fashion, wear whatever you want, driving, go as fast as you want and, uh, and performing form as if no one's ever watching. There you go. So funny. <laughs> Those, and always give 110% in all three. There you go. <laughs> uh, so moving on to the future a little bit in here, Chris Humphreys has asked on Facebook, you've already expressed an interest in BTCC next year, but if you got the choice, would you go front wheel drive or rear wheel drive? Well, yeah, I have actually. And that is the aim um, because I feel like I, I don't have a lot to prove in GT racing anymore. And um, I, I'd love to give BTCC a go. Realistically, obviously, as an AM, uh, I, I, I'm not going to be a, a race winner, that's for sure. Um, but um, BTCC also commercially, I think, is, is, um, is a great platform. And from a sponsor's point of view, I think it's probably the best series in the UK mm. um, because of all the viewing figures and live TV and um, but to answer your question, front wheel drive or rear wheel drive, I think whatever I'm in, it will be like I'm starting again because much less power, much less grip, no downforce. Um, it's back to sprint racing again, essentially. Um, you know, a lot more rough and tumble um, and on a load of circuits that I, I haven't ever driven. So I think I'm going to be starting pretty much from scratch. So I, I guess rear wheel drive would be better for me because that would be slightly more familiar. Um, oh yeah, and also no paddle shift either. So you know, back to shifting gears and so um, sequential. Um, so I think rear wheel drive would be the only thing that would be mildly familiar. But um, I, I wouldn't really mind either way, to be honest. I think um, I've got to do a fair bit of testing, and um, I, I reckon I'll be absolutely atrocious to start. But um, I, I, I attack everything absolutely head on, and so um, I'd like to think that I'd be mixing it midfield, you know, at some stage. So. Uh, mm. Yeah, either would do, but preference would be rear-wheel drive, I think, initially. Cool. And the last question that we've got in this tranche of fan questions before we go back to uh, Nick's more journalistic questions comes from James Thompson on Twitter, um, who asks, what do you get more enjoyment and satisfaction out of, the motor racing or the music? Um, well, as most people know, motor racing is terribly, it's a lot of highs, but there are more lows than highs. And 
it, it's kind of like there's no in between in motor racing. It's either absolutely incredible or just the lowest low ever that you take away from the circuit and it affects you. You know, you keep thinking about, ah, damn it, what if that or this went really long, wrong or whatever. And, you know, so um, I would say more consistency would be the music. Um, but there are a lot of similarities. Like you get the same, I'm very competitive as people know, you know, I'm, I'll fight as hard as I can on the circuit. And in the same way, uh, when you go on stage, because you're going on stage to a crowd and they don't have an expectation of you. So you've got to convince them. So we go on, I get my band together just as I would get the team of engineers and my teammate together. And we sort of talk before each race or each, each gig. And I say, right, from a band perspective, okay, boys, I want 110%. We're going to go out there and we're going to absolutely rip the roof off. And that's what I expect when I, whether I'm racing or gigging, you know, we go on with the same attitude, whether it's my race team or my band. And, um, luckily I've surrounded myself in the last few years from racing and from the band perspective with some of the most incredible musicians, the most incredible engineers and race teams. And so I know that I've got a strong team behind me and it is a team effort, whatever, however you look at both of them, but going on stage to seven, 10,000, 20,000 people. And seeing everyone singing along and waving their arms and jumping around, you know, and just going off with them chanting RPJ or whatever is a high that I don't think anyone can ever replicate. I feel incredibly lucky that I'm able to do that. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great thing, but it's a challenge both, both times. And so my competitiveness is the same whether I'm in a race car or on stage, but the highs I definitely, I would say are more consistent in music. British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen creative and RPS-driven media production for motorsport.radio. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. So you you covered this a bit with with the fan questions there and it's it's about your title defense in, in 2018 it didn't go particularly well when compared to the to the year before uh, no wins one podium versus three wins and four podiums yeah you, you said there was some some tire stuff going on there was was there anything else that was the issue well um 2018 i i took a very different view um I didn't really view it as a sort of a title defense. I wanted to have um, a bit of fun again, you know, because it had all been pushing towards this unachievable goal of winning British GT and, and we managed to do that. So I just wanted to have fun really. And so Seb was off to racing Europe, which was great. And so um, I thought it would be fun to uh, uh, team up with my uh, a really good mate and also, you know, the person I won GT4 with, with Ryan again. Um, we knew obviously we'd be probably, you know, being a bronze and a silver pairing that we'd probably find it quite tough to run at the front anyway. So our expectations weren't that we would be going out and winning straight away. Our expectations were that we could, if we performed solidly and um, could sort of run, you know, in the top sort of five or six and get consistent results, we could be there or thereabouts. But essentially it was to have fun. But of course, a few other factors came into play that year. You know, the weather was atrocious from the first round at Alton and it just rained every single, pretty much every single race at Rockingham. Uh, to, and it was just, 
tough because as we know the Bentley isn't the greatest in the wet or wasn't that the Gen 1 definitely wasn't and so uh, whatever competitiveness we might have had was definitely hampered by by that and um, and also you know we had a new engineer so everyone was sort of bedding in Ryan was learning the car I, we were both getting trying to find a, the right thing with this um, the setup with the um, with the new engineer as well and um, and the weather was playing against us so um uh, it was it, that's kind of what made it tough. But uh, you know, but saying that, there was one of the the best drives, and I'm extremely proud of Ryan as well. When um, we got the podium in Spa, I mean, if you're going to get a podium in the year, you want it to be at Spa, right? You know, and um, I, I handed the car over to him, and um, and then he went out, and he had so much pressure. I think he had Yelma Berman, Johnny Adam, uh, John Barnes behind him. You know, three of the quickest drivers in professional drivers in GT3 and Ryan held them off about 40 minutes and it was it was incredible and so that that podium was amazing and it would have made it, it pretty much made up for all the other tough times we had that year I mean that was an incredible race and you know from given obviously like I said that we were a bronze silver pairing to have achieved that was pretty special so um, there were no expectations from me from the beginning of the year um, I wanted to have fun and I did have fun with my with my former teammate from GT4 and we just went out there and did what we could you know given the circumstances and um, to be honest it was it was it was a tough year but um, we had we had fun with it and and that's uh, that's what we set out to do so then 2018 ended you announced your retirement and yeah. almost in the same press release announced your comeback. <laughs> you <laughs> not, not really. You not really. You, you weren't retired for long, were you? <laughs> um, no. Well, so. I was fully intent because obviously there were, there were various other factors as well that were coming into play. You know, the BOP was starting to really be an issue. And, um, uh, you know, because they, they cross over the BOP from the European circuits to the British circuits. And, but some of them just don't have the same characteristics. And also some of the cars don't have the same characteristics. And as a result, sometimes it works for you. Other times it doesn't. And that some cars can be seven or eight out of 10 at every circuit and others will be 10 out of 10 and then one out of 10. Do you know what I mean? In performance. And, um, uh, and unfortunately the Bentley was the latter, you know, it was either good or absolutely nowhere. And, um, and also don't forget in 2018 as well, um, mm. uh, there was a lot of wet races. And, um, if you remember the Gen 1 Bentley was not good in the wet, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great, it didn't, it wasn't a great lover of the wet. And, um, and so that hampered us massively as well. It was the same with the Nissan as well. And I think it's yeah because they're both yeah. very large vehicles. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I spoke when they, when they first announced the program, I was speaking to Brian Gush when they first announced the GT3. And he was saying how they managed to get it down to well underweight and they have to ballast it back up. But you've still got a lot of weight yeah. up top that you've got to control that top heavy weight, haven't you? Because you've got yeah, a big it's, roof it's the yaw, quite high off the ground. Yeah, it's what we call, it's the yaw on it. And, um, and it, it was just, the problem was getting the pounds down onto the ground, which is why we've always struggled at Donny because when you're coming out of the slow corners, it's just always struggle to get the power down. So you add that mm. into every corner in the wet, and it was it was uh, let's just say really tough. And so that also hampered us because obviously in 2018, you know, there were a lot of wet races and a lot of wet qualifying, and that that didn't help us at all. So that that's all something to um, 
to sort of bear in mind. Um, but um, uh, yeah, what was the original question? I think we strayed. Oh, <laughs> yes. We, yeah. Um, it was the question was, what was it about the combination of Rick Parfit Jr., Seb Morris, and JRM, which made you, you pick up your helmet again? Well, um, it was because I got a call um, and I'd said no categorically because the politics mm. and the BOP and everything else was, was taking over from the fun. Do you know what I mean? And, um, yes. and, I, and I felt like I was only going backwards. So, um, but I got a call from JRM and all I can say is the deal was absolutely ridiculous um, for me to come back. And I imposed loads of things on saying, well, even if it's that, I'm still not coming back. And they went, come on, you're the best, Dan. We want you in, which was very flattering. And I said, right, well, I'm only coming back if this is the deal. And also, if I have Seb, because they had another driver lined up, and I said, I'm not working with any other driver. And um, that Seb also has no budget. And they went, okay, right. And so they came back and said, fine, we'll do that. So we, we, you know, so that was the, so suddenly from absolutely not coming back, I was given the, the prospect of the best deal I've ever had in racing to come back in the new Bentley the new car, which was beautiful, and I hadn't really driven it, with Seb, you know, with a team that had won the GT1 World Championship previously, it was a hell of an offer, really, wasn't it? You know, and um, but obviously, what happened in that year was we proved that you you can't operate on a sort of budget, and you know, we the budget that we did. I mean, we, like I said, we had no testing whatsoever. We had a shakedown, and then. At every round, we did no testing before any rounds whatsoever, never. And we used the two one-hour sessions as setup, you know. And so we were chasing a yeah. setup with a new car for the team, you know, new car for me, new car for Seb. Um, but at the same time, Seb would do most of the setup. And then I'd literally get four or five laps in the second session before going into qualifying. So I was driving essentially an, an absolutely brand new car to me. And it might have a Bentley badge on it, but it was completely fundamentally different to the previous car. Uh-huh. very much more aero. And I, I literally had to pretty much get in and drive it blind with, without really knowing the car. And um, that proved quite frustrating, as, as was shown. And it had a couple of um, intricacies, which just caught me, caught me out a couple of times, which you know I could have ironed out if I'd had some test days in the car. And, um, and we were always chasing setup and always chasing, you know, and so considering what we did, I thought we did all right. And then, of course, after the first round, after getting that win, which was great, so we got the first win for, in Europe for the new car. Um, after that round, I, I, I think uh, on a balanced performance, our wings were absolutely, most definitely clipped. And um, like I said, at Donington, when I'm only, as a pairing, you know, I think I was only four tenths off or three tenths off Seb in qualifying at Donington, one of the best uh, laps I've ever done. Seb obviously makes the car go as quick as he possibly can, which is going to be, no one's going to go a load quicker than Seb in, in a Bentley. And I was only three times off. So that is, a, as a pairing, that's about as bang on as you want it to be. And um, I couldn't believe it when I was told I was 11th. I said, that's one of the best laps I've ever driven. And Seb could only qualify 11th as well. We knew. And then when the lights went green, I put my foot down and everyone literally just drove away. I, I remember radioing in and going, guys, we're just, so slow down the straight. It's just, 
impossible. So we just fought hard as we could and drove the absolute wheels off it to try and get some form of a result. But that was kind of the, um, the story of the season is that, you know, we, we, we essentially didn't do enough testing and, um, and given, given the budget that we had, you know, you, you can't be very competitive, I think, irrespective of who you've got in the car as a pairing. So, and when we were going up against, they shall remain nameless, but there was, you know, several other people who were spending 700,000 plus. And I know that one person was borderline spending a million quid last year. Um, you know, when we're, we're running on hundred, less under 200 grand for the entire season, you know, you're not, you're not going to be competitive. And so considering what we did, I thought was pretty astonishing, to be honest with you. But yeah, so that, that's kind of what happened. Fair enough. The, we've got another question here, which we, we have pretty much covered, but this is a, a question that I've been asked to ask by my colleague at the Checker Flag. I do some writing for the Checker Flag as well. So I'm going to ask yeah. it, and then he's going to use that as the basis of a, of a written piece that's going to coincide with the release of the interview. Um, so with regards to your, to your music as well, uh, you've been pretty vocal on social media about how lockdown has affected the music industry and the events sector. How do you think the yeah. virus might influence your racing career? Is it racing now out of the question due to financial considerations, or is it a chance to indulge a little as you've got more time on your hands? No, that's a really good question, and I think it's very it's very poignant at this time, and it also shows what's happening within racing worlds because um, I think people such as myself who rely on sponsorship to go racing, this is the most difficult time in the world because there are very few companies now that will be putting money into sponsoring race cars, and so for me, racing would definitely be out, um, but it has given light to better deals being offered and obviously those individuals who are very who are very successful in business or private individuals they're able to now indulge their passion you know um, more cost effectively but it does mean unfortunately that I think a lot of people who rely on sponsorship will be sidelined and racing especially GT racing as you can pretty much see will be made up of wealthy individuals and factory drivers and paid drivers and um, that's great on the one hand, but it is also sad on the other, which means that I think in motorsport in general, where young up and coming people who rely on sponsorship, they won't be able to get the drive. Um, and um, I, it's going to be a tough time, I think, for racing in general for the moment until the world recovers uh, for the whole motorsport industry. And I, I've been offered, um, and I won't say what, drives in some very big, profile, high profile uh, series for absolute cut rates, you know, much, much less than they would normally be. Um, but of course I rely completely on sponsorship and even now I wouldn't want to ask my sponsors because all of them have had tough times. So, um, for me, I'm just going to, I'm going to take this year off, enjoy the time off, really get my health back in check and 21 will, um, will come back stronger and, um, hopefully all being well, you know, the world will heal. Everyone can get back to business. The economy hopefully will start to recover and then people can also look at, um, potentially putting marketing budget towards towards uh, motorsport. Um, from a music perspective, it's been pretty well documented, as I mentioned earlier. It's just been desecrated, unfortunately. You know, we work with and represent a lot of musicians, DJs, bands, and all of their work has fundamentally disappeared. And, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the most talented people in, in the world. Some of my touring session boys play with huge name artists and 
obviously all their touring has been cancelled. Everything's been shifted to 21, but then obviously that is also still in doubt, you know, because no one knows where the world is going to be. And so it's, it's a very, very scary time for, for everyone involved in the business. Um, I, I've used a motorsport term, uh, <laughs> you know, when anyone asked me how, how our business is, I said, well, you know what, we're in a, we're in a full course yellow at the moment. Just got to make sure the car's all right. Everything's good. Make sure everything's perfect, you know, and then as soon as it goes green, be ready to absolutely hit it as hard as possible. And that's about the best way I can describe uh, the way I am at the moment is that, you know, um, well, I'm still talking to my band, you know, we still uh, rehearse virtually. We still put ideas together. Um, and um, the great thing is we're, we've been able to be a lot more creative. And so from that perspective, um, when we start gigging again, um, we'll have a, a show that is absolutely bigger, better and more kick-ass than ever before. So just got to get through this tough time. I hope the world recovers and I hope the arts recover because what would, what would a world without music and entertainment and theater be? I mean, you know, it's all about putting smiles on people's faces, as I said before. And that's, that's, I, I consider that to be the best job in the world. And so, um, yeah, I hope that we can all get back to doing that soon. And then we have one final question here. And this is, if I wasn't on the show, I'd have tweeted this one in and hope that Sarah read it out. This is my fan question. On. And I think you pretty, I think you pretty much answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you identify as? Wikipedia identifies you as a sports car driver and musician, whereas we identified you as a rocker turned racer. So the music before the racing. When you think of Rick Parfit Jr., are you in overalls with a helmet or jeans and t-shirt and a microphone? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, uh, music, music first, motorsport second, hundred percent. Yeah. That's, yeah. At the end of the day, that's my heritage. Um, that was always my passion from day one. Um, cars are absolutely my passion, but it was, it was a hobby to see how far I could take it. And it's, um, it's gone a hell of a lot further. And I feel so privileged to have been able to have driven the things I've been able to, dri to drive, but it's only been down to some amazing friends and some amazing sponsors who have believed in me and stood by me to get me into those cars. And so, um, but the music as well, the music has been hard work from 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 when I was when I had my first ever four track, you know, as like a, a nine year old, and so um, I, I would say I love them both, um, but my 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 first priority is is music at the moment. And who knows, as I get older, no one wants to see a really old bloke jumping around on stage. Oh dear, given my heritage, I shouldn't have said that. But um, <laughs> um, but, so there's um, plenty of so, people pay pay good money for that at the moment, or. Yeah. Money for that <laughs> but I, I just, you know, when, when I perform, I, I give everyone who's seen our band knows that we go out there and give everything from a physical point of view, from a show perspective, you know, we try and really engage the crowd and, you know, and I, I'm getting on a little bit now, you know, I'm not, I'm not 20 anymore. And so the amount of jumping and, and, uh, you know, jumping off drum rises and, just giving every ounce of of, uh, of energy I possibly can. You know, my knees are starting to hurt. My back hurts after every gig. You know, uh, you know, it takes quite a lot of fitness to to do the two hours full full chat. You know that we do. So um, who knows? I think I think motorsport will always be with me. And um, uh, so the priorities might shift. You know, as the music quiets down, maybe in the next five or six years it might shift more towards motorsport. But I'd like to do historics, I think, eventually. 
but initially I still think I, I want to do a couple more high profile um, uh, things. I'd like to tick off Le Mans if I can. I'd like to tick off Bathurst. Um, I'd love to do a return to Daytona. Um, the first priority is to see if I can get into uh, BTCC as well. And um, But yeah, combined with building the band, getting more festival headline slots, and um, and just taking that as far as I can as well. So um, that's kind of, I hope that answers the question. It does. Now, I do hope that you uh, read the sheet that Sarah sent out to you and you, you, you prepared your answers to the quickfire questions she's about to unleash upon you. Okay. Um, no, but unleash oh, away. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can have a couple of minutes to think about them, but Sarah's going to let... I, I, I could I could have lied, but uh, yeah. uh, I didn't. <laughs> quickfire questions should be like that. They should be quickfire, and I should answer with my first instinct. I sh- you shouldn't plan these things. This is much better this way. This is, this is fair enough. Well, we've we've actually got one more fan question that's come in. We've a question from Reddit uh, from Wormsall Warrior. Um, he said this might be a pretty boring question. But I always wondered, what's the driver's worst feeling corner? Since we always hear about good stuff, I wonder which one they dislike taking. Oh, um, for me, the, the corner I dislike most is Druids at Alton um, because it's, um, it's, a, it's a kind of a weird corner because you're coming in very, like, from a really narrow part of the circuit and there's a bump as you go in, but it's not quite a 90 degree. It's sort of, you know, a 75 degree with adverse camber and there is one line and just off the line, it's really slippy. And if you get one tire on that, you know, it'll fire you off into the wall at a rate of knots and it will be a big old chunk as there's, there's been loads of times there. So when you saw uh, from someone of my age who's got a wife and a dog and a career, you know, and the difference between the commitment between, say, me and a 21-year-old Seb who basically thinks he's incredibly invincible. <laughs> there, is, there was different, definitely two very distinct approaches. I was like, get through it as quick as I can. Whereas Seb goes, go as fast as I can. And if I crash, then I've taken it just too fast. You know? But um, uh, yeah, so that would be the one. And it's, it's where you, you're, you feel a little bit uncertain of where the grip is in the car because you can get it just right. And if the car just slightly starts to wash out with understeer or the back end catches it's just there's just always a little bit of trepidation as you go into that corner so because if you miss your braking by literally a meter um you'll be wide but at the same time if you brake too early you've wiped loads of time off your off your time around there as well and seb always told me to shift up into fourth and take it in fourth which you're really moving and i was just like i remember doing that and uh, alton luckily i've had pole you know um I had pole two years running and, um, and, uh, and was, wasn't that far off it last year, even though, like I said, I'd never even been circuit in the new car. Um, but, um, uh, that was always a bit scary going in there and shifting up, you know, <laughs> it's just like, Oh my God, and you just hang on for dear life until you come out the other end and you're like, ah, that's all right. Oh, and obviously Eau Rouge is pretty spectacular as well. You know, that's a pretty scary corner, I would say. So they were. Okie dokie. So last up, we've got our quick five questions. We ask these to every guest that comes on. So first up, the best and worst cars that you've driven, road or race, and why? Okay. 
best race car I've driven um, would be Gen 1 Bentley in 2017. We just had everything absolutely spot on on that car. Um, uh, worst race car I've ever driven was my uh, 2010 Fiat Abarth Silverstone Classic car because it wasn't a race car. It was a road car with a roll cage put in it <laughs> and it rolled around like a, an absolute mother. And um, but, uh, needless to say, I have to be thankful for it because it got me into racing. So yeah, there you go. Next well, question, Stay off the curves with that one. <laughs> oh God, definitely. Not a lot of car there. You catch a sausage curb with that one. You're on your lid, did not you? Yep, yep, yep. It's the modern day version of what are those Austin A30s that they race as well? <laughs> they like turning over as well, don't they? Next up, the best and worst circuits that you've driven. Um, well, I love Silverstone. Always, always have. Um, and I'm very proud to be a BRDC member as well. Um, so obviously very intrinsically linked with Silverstone. So it was the first circuit I won a race on and, um, I've always been fairly quick there. Worst circuit for me. Um, oh, I, I know this is, I'm not the biggest fan of Snetterton, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I wouldn't say it's a worse circuit. I'm just not not the biggest fan of it. I, I don't find it particularly inspiring as a circuit. Hey, there you go. Okay. Next up is the three-car garage. So your dream road car, dream race car, and dream play car. Right. Right. Road car, dream road car, would probably be a Bentayga because... You know, given my age, you know, we like the trips to Ikea. So you could fit stuff in it, but you're still really comfy and it's a Bentley. So that's great. Uh, dream race car would be, uh, I think it was due probably a Lola was it T60 or T70, one of those. Or what was the, the Ferrari LMP with the, the Momo one? I can't remember what it was. Um, Either that or the, the Peugeot the, LMP. The, the Ferrari was it the three three SP? That's the one. Three three SP. That would was. be my dream. That would be my dream race car, and my dream play car would be a. Oh gosh. Well, this is weird, but it'll probably be between say a Veyron or or a Chiron or a. Um, or a Caterham 620R, because both are absolutely bonkers. <laughs> oh, the That's Bugatti very... Veyron and the car that knocked it off the top of Top, Gear, top Gear's lapboard. <laughs> oh, is that right? There you go. I didn't know that. There you go. So, yeah, perfect. Done. <laughs> Excellent. And the last question uh, was one that got thrown in as a question previously, but we liked it so much that we've incorporated it into our quickfire questions. It's a bit left field, but you've been given an elephant. You can't give it away and you can't sell it. What do you do with the elephant? <laughs> okay. I can't sell it and I can't give it away. Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd use it for the, the shop run. You know, I mean, let's be honest. It would uh, it'd be perfect, wouldn't it? You know, you could fit loads of shopping on it. Um, Take it also, to I think it look really... It would look it would look great turning up to gigs on it as well. You know, it might take me a while, but I reckon that would be a great way to go on stage. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think it would cause. I just I'd just use it as my everyday runabout, basically. You know, be perfect. 
Yeah. Could could you get any more rock and roll than turning up at a gig on Dumbo? <laughs> hey, his name's not Dumbo. He's like he would be. He'd be called something like Excalibur or something like that. I reckon. I like no, it. Dumbo, I Dumbo's do. Right. It'd, be, it'd be like that scene in Aladdin, wouldn't it? When he comes into the market, he'd be like, here I am. <laughs> Yeah, but what I'd also do is I'd get him go faster stripes as well, you know. So you'd have to get him fully modded. So uh, you know, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a little little helmet which has a, has a fin on it for downforce, and um, you know, maybe some uh, a little sort of a, a rear wing on his tail, you know, that sort of thing, and uh, and a couple of go faster tusks. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's a load of stuff you could because the tusks are natural attachments, aren't they? So you know you could actually string a really good set of like Mon- Monte Carlo rally headlights across the front as well, couldn't you? You could just hang hang it from each of the tusks. That would be good. You know, hang on, look, there's, there's a lot we could discuss here. Actually, yeah, there's a lot we can discuss here. You know, and he'd, he'd need a set of goggles as well. You know, just for you know so that he's a bit happier. And, um, you know, we still haven't discussed what the trunk ability would be. So he'd have a winch on the trunk as well. So to get you out of like uh, some situations and, um, yeah, basically put on the swimming trunks and, uh, ride him, ride him, uh, everywhere. It'd be great. <laughs> I love it. Oh my I God. <laughs> I, I've been in the sun too long. Best answer yet. <laughs> Best answer yet. <laughs> That is a brilliant way to draw things to a close. It's been an absolute pleasure and a joy having you on, Rick. Um, We've really enjoyed it. And I'm sure that everyone listening uh, will love it. So thank you very much for taking time out of your holiday. Thank you. And and all of British GT, and which is a wonderful, wonderful series, you know, should be um, grateful for having something like this as well. It's nice. It's nice to everyone can get to know us lot, you know, who do a bit of the driving um, on a bit more of a personal level. And um, so now you know pretty much everything about me. So I'm an immensely boring, what can I say? Sorry to, de- to destroy <laughs> what people thought. Put it this way, if I ever win the lottery, I'm buying you an elephant. <laughs> I'm, I'm going stra- to get straight on to Demon Tweet. And it's a whole new section. <laughs> Start, start ordering up the parts catalogue for upgrading your elephant. Yeah, yeah. A, a good plug for John Minchell's business there as well. Hey, there you go. <laughs> All right, cool guys. Thank you very much. Well, that's the end of the episode, and we hope that you enjoyed it half as much as we did because we very much enjoyed it. And again, our thanks go to Rick. He was kind enough to join us from his holiday in the south of France by some old school teleconferencing. The second part of our double episode will be available from Wednesday of this week on all the regular podcast providers, so don't forget to check it out then. And it will also be available on Motorsport Radio as usual. Until next time, take care. listening to the british gt fan show remember the show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast redistributed reproduced or used in any form without permission for more information or to get in touch please visit www.bgtfshow.co.uk thanks for listening